This morning, I put on a different coat than what I'm wearing right now. And uh, Sharon told me corduroy is for fall. And I, I don't really know much about that stuff, but I'm glad I put the corduroy coat on because there was a note in here and I don't know who gave it to me. It probably was my granny or something like that, but uh, it's just a quote. It says from an old Randolph Scott movie. And I don't remember who Randolph Scott is, but it's not a matter of who's right, but rather what's right. And it says this will help us achieve unity. You find things in, you know, when you preach in different places, you find things in your coats. I'm sure Kevin can attest to that. And uh, that's just something that was sort of interesting that I wanted to share when we uh, look further into a lot of the topics that we've been considering lately about the work of an evangelist because this can't be about personalities. This can't be about who's saying this and who's saying that. It has to be about the truth. And we stand on the truth and uh, we work on understanding more and more about the truth as time goes on. I came here to North Columbus with the understanding that I would not be taking over the pulpit. Uh, primarily, I would be working on outside evangelism and making contacts and having Bible studies. And I want you all to know I intend to keep going as we have it presently. I don't think there's a thing wrong with the way we have things here. That said, we, we really have to understand what the Bible teaches concerning the role of an evangelist because we need to fulfill every aspect of what God intends for us to do. We've looked at details concerning the work of an evangelist over the past couple of weeks, and what I would like for us to ask this morning, what's the, what's the point? What is the whole goal? Where, where are we trying to arrive at? What is the purpose of the role of an evangelist? And we want to look, I really want to start in 2 Timothy 4 as we look here together because we need to have the full picture of what God has authorized. The context of Bible passages is important in any study. It's not just what literally is being said in the text. It's who's saying it and who is it being addressed to and, and uh, what situations, what's, uh, what uh, kind of things are going on for the audience at that time, what kind of things are going on for the speaker at that time. All of that really has to be taken in to what we're studying. And so I want us to consider the full picture. Uh, not that we've seen a lack of that in the past couple of weeks. I appreciate the work and the, the study that's gone into what we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. So, But, uh, uh, you know, we, we want to really ask... You know, what's the point of all this? I want us to read in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, Paul's words to the young preacher Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So what we want to talk about this morning is the work of an evangelist. As this passage is stating it, 
And really, these five verses are sort of our outline for this lesson. And we're not going to minutely go through every single step, but we want to just briefly go through this and consider, again, what is the core role, what is the core point of the place of an evangelist? First of all, in the first two verses, I would say preaching the word uh, is such a huge motivation for what he's saying. Paul is referring Timothy here to a command to be biblical. That word charge in verse 1 is the same thing as command. And so Paul may as well be saying, I command you therefore before God and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's witnesses here. And Paul is making it clear that I'm charging this before you. And that this God will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. So there's a responsibility here. And he's saying preach the word. What we learn through the scriptures, and we won't go to all of these, but the word is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, we get all things that are profitable, all things that are good. Everything that's good is here. And anything that's not here, we have to recognize, is not good. Anything that we find is not within the pattern that's shown within the scriptures is not useful. And of course, Galatians 1 the, the standard there that Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As you said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. We pull from this that there is a certain direction that God wants us to go. There's a certain way that he intends for us to walk. And we move from this to understand, too, that the word is powerful. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Paul says also in Romans, excuse me, Paul says also, but you get what I mean. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Of course, you have, I have James uh, James 1, 21 through 22, and also Acts 2, 37 in this, that the word cuts to the heart. The word is going to get to the central core of the situation. It will reveal our hearts. It will reveal our motivations. It will reveal where we're actually going, even when we may dress it up in other ways. The word is powerful. And so I say all this for us to understand that when he is telling Timothy, preach the word, he's not saying just make him feel good or make him feel comfortable. Bible preaching does not always comfort. Bible preaching will sometimes convict us to make the changes that are necessary to be holy before Him. And so that's what we have to understand. Preach the Word, he says. That Word is practical in its application. The ways that we put it together here, it reproves or convinces the unconvinced. That's the goal of Scripture. Now that doesn't mean that Every single person, you know, when he says convince, rebuke, exhort, doesn't mean that every single person that we show the Bible to is going to be convinced. Oh, well, I see what that verse says now. Okay. You know, we, we have honest-hearted brethren that will, that will do that. But even then, we have to understand that not everybody is immediately going to be pulled to the side there, but the preaching, the teaching itself has to be something that shows us, that, that convinces those, that changes minds, that changes hearts. It also rebukes the rebellious. You look back in Titus 1 and verse 10, there are many insubordinate, Paul says, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things without naught, 
for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul is saying in that passage that the people that you're working among in, in, in Crete, Titus, they're known in a certain fashion. <laughs> and so even people on the outside recognize these issues. And so the, that preaching is supposed to change that. It's supposed to rebuke those who are rebellious. And also we recognize that it exhorts those who are discouraged and striving. But he says there, preach the word with all longsuffering and doctrine. That term doctrine will, rec- will, will help us understand that uh, this is talking about teaching. Uh, Vine's definition denotes teaching, either that which is taught or the act of teaching or instruction. There's a number of references up there. We won't go all the way through that, but that's directly from Vine's. And uh, the Vine's definition for preach, to be a herald, or in general to proclaim. I want us to recognize a bit of a distinction here. And I don't mean to oversell this and say that one is completely exclusive from the other. But preaching the word is distinct from teaching the word. The definitions are different. We want to recognize that here we have teaching, that that which is taught, the doctrine, the teaching, the teaching, the instruction, right? But then the preach definition, to be a herald or in general to proclaim. So one means to herald or proclaim the truth. The other means instruction. I would suggest that teaching primarily involves the giving of information to the student. That's what should be happening in our Bible classes. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, if you instruct the brethren in these things, I think that refers back to this goal of teaching. Our sermons are primarily for application. And I think that's how we need to really look at this. We often confuse these two. Sometimes we'll spend all our time applying lessons in Bible class and distributing information in a sermon that sometimes anyone could go out and read in a commentary. We need to be careful about these things. And again, I'm not saying that these things are exclusive to each other, but you look at the sermons of Peter in Acts, you look at the sermon of Stephen in Acts 7, James in Acts 15, the sermons of Paul, all of those sermons you recognize teaching, information giving was included in those sermons. But every single one of those sermons, the main goal was proclaiming the truth clearly and plainly. And when there is a question used in those sermons, it is a rhetorical question that should beg an obvious answer. Let's look at that example and understand that the preacher is getting to the point where we're trying to uh, encourage our listeners to get to a certain goal. Um, in ads, I think they're, uh, they call it a call, of, call to action when you're asking your audience to do something. And that's really part of what preaching is. You're leading your people to a, your, the people you're talking to to a specific goal. Jeremiah 1 and verse 10. See, I have set this day set over you the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet and he was working within that But you know what? God told Jeremiah his mission was going to fail. And yet he said, you go out there and you say it anyway. And you're going to be tearing some things down. You're going to be destroying some things that need to be destroyed. And also at the same time, you're going to be building and planting things that need to be planted, that need to be built up. I believe that's the work of a preacher. I believe that's part of the work of an evangelist, as we see with Peter, with Stephen, with James and Paul, all through 
the, the book of Acts. He speaks here, and, and again, just to generalize, just to generally uh, remind us, preaching is, teaching is involved with preaching. There's going to be some information that we give in sermons, okay? I'm not saying that we can't give out any information in sermons. And there's going to be some application in our Bible classes. But there is a fine line of distinction here. And we don't want to make sure that we're using our time wisely, that we're recognizing that, that uh, our time needs to be used in the right way together. He says, be ready in season and out of season. The King James Version, be instant. The... Uh, English Standard Version, be prepared, be prepared, be ready, be instant. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians uh, 9. From Strong's and from Vine says it's to be at hand, to be ready. But in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, uh, Andrew didn't get a chance to look at this in detail last week. I'd like for us to look at it in a little bit more detail uh, this week as we continue to think about these things. Um, 1 Corinthians 9 and uh, verse 1, we want to recognize that Paul was coming under attack over the question of whether he was an apostle or not, and this is really part of his defense. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, Do we have no right to eat and drink? We have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this was written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be the partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And of course, he goes on to say, I've used none of these things in that particular case. I want us to recognize that uh, for the preacher to have the wherewithal to be instant, he has to be either effective at the work itself, uh, uh, and he also needs to, the support or income necessary to do the work. The ability to be instant or to be prepared to do what Paul is calling upon Timothy to do is uh, there's a necessity here for that preacher, that evangelist, to have the ability to do those things. And I would suggest that uh, that material support is present here in this passage. We recognize this. We also need to recognize that in, uh, in verse 6 of this passage, he mentions Barnabas. Barnabas needs to be included in our look at evangelists because of this passage as well as the fact that he preached at Antioch and elsewhere. In verse 7, it seems like Paul is essentially saying, does anyone do their job for free? Uh, does anyone, you know, if we're working a secular job, do we want to go and do this for free for somebody? Generally, no. 
that we want to have some sort of support from that. And so by this reasoning, we can credibly establish that any evangelist can indeed make their living expressly from the gospel via the support of the brethren of the local congregation. That's, that's necessary. Paul, I want us to recognize in this passage, puts no limit on this support. And neither does he expand it any more than what it ought to be. The rest of 1 Corinthians 9 really seems to outline Paul's focus on not being a burden upon the brethren and making himself flexible to the situation. And so he's not discussing what the church has to do in terms of the preacher. He's talking about the attitude that the evangelist must have in terms of the work to be done locally. The evangelist has to be mindful of how much pressure he's putting on the brethren to support him. He has to keep in mind those things. At the same time, we can't argue that the New Testament requires that the preacher be poor and destitute. And we have to be careful in these situations to recognize that Paul is saying that, that, uh, that someone who does this, he, it's interesting the way he's saying this. He's saying, don't preach for the money. But at the same time, he is emphasizing that preachers have material needs that must be met to survive. And he is saying that he has the right to be supported entirely by his work in the gospel. Even though he didn't at that time, he's saying that, that, that you know, the preacher has that right. And the fact that he mentions Barnabas, we can conclude that he says this primarily in the context of an evangelist, not just as an apostle. And so even though Paul did not use this liberty while preaching in Corinth, it doesn't mean that such a decision would have been wrong or sinful for him. And so at this time, I want us with each of these points to just recognize, are we preaching the word at North Columbus? Are we fulfilling what Paul is saying to Timothy here? We've chosen a model here where the majority of brethren are filling the pulpit and every one of us has to treat this work with the seriousness that the Lord requires, the same seriousness that Paul puts toward Timothy. Are we teaching sermons and preaching Bible classes? I fall into this trap a whole lot where I'm doling out information. One time I had a, a, a lesson series on the, the minor prophets at Pinson where it really did become that, just a whole bunch of information. That's not very useful. We need to have our sermons aim toward a certain goal that we're trying to understand that we're, we're meant to change hearts here, that we're, we're supposed to aim for the heart in what we're saying in our sermons. And so how much time are we putting into our lessons? You know, a good suggestion I've heard is to aim for eight hours cumulative work on a sermon. I'm not saying that everybody has to do this. I'm aiming for this personal goal, but you know what? We can set our own goals to basically increase our abilities in preaching. Uh, can we spend five hours on a sermon? Can we spend 10 hours? I think we have to make that a priority if we're going to be a, of a benefit to our congregation together here. Good preaching can change hearts, edify souls, and strengthen the entire congregation. And so every effort we can bring to make it better is going to be better for all of us. Secondly, he says in verses 3 through 5, the time will come. And I'm just generalizing these statements. The time will come, be watchful, and endure affliction. Just noticing the, the action words here or recognizing the, the time aspect here. The time will come basically means that threats to the truth would manifest. And he warned the Ephesian elders about this. And he's warning Timothy about this because Timothy himself is in Ephesus. He is told to preach for this reason. And so he is to equip the brethren to stand against false teaching. And again, who will have the itching ears? It's the brethren themselves. Uh, to read First and Second Timothy and Titus, just as Andrew said last week, nearly all the work that evangelists do is preparatory for the brethren. 
There are outside duties, of course, but you know what? We have those outside duties as Christians. And it's all of our goal to go out and evangelize the lost. You know, Satan already has the world in this manner. Satan already has, you know, the people in the world that have the itching ears that want to be told easy things. And so he's speaking concerning the brethren here. The evangelist is meant to be vigilant for any threats that come upon the brethren. And this includes a balance of sorts. We have to be careful that we don't preach on hobby horses. If I feel strongly about some particular topic, maybe that will just sort of consume all of my time and effort. And that's to the detriment of other topics. We have to preach on present dangers as well as inoculate the brethren against possible dangers that could flare up in the future. In short, Acts 20, 27, we preach the whole gospel. When Paul is saying here, too, they'll be turned away to fables, it's primarily concerning Jewish fables and genealogies. You can look at all the other references in his letters to Timothy and Titus that basically, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 and 4, uh, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, reject profane and old wives' fables. Uh, Titus 1, 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. The, the temptation was for brethren to get wrapped up in, well, who's related to Jesus, who's related to Moses, so on and so forth. But the main core is keep to what's important. And uh, we want to recognize this is not dealing with the harder issues of Scripture. Uh, all of the Bible is necessary or needed. You know, we often focus on, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the fact that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But you know what? Those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There is a reason and a purpose for every book in the Bible. And it is up to us to understand that purpose and take time to study it. And uh, we further understand, for example, in 2 Peter uh, 3 and verse 16, Peter refers to the letters that Paul has written and all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. 2 Peter 3 and verse 16 tells us that. The issue was the untaught and unstable were twist, twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. Hard to understand does not mean impossible to understand. And so there's a place, I believe, for brethren to go into depth on an issue that they have studied in depth with. And so our preaching really should be deep in focus, but easily applied. It takes every one of us to make this congregation what it is. It takes every one of us. This congregation is no single person or no single family. It's all of us together. And so... How well do we listen to one another's sermons? I think that's a good question for us to think about. I have a listening problem that I'm working on. And I just want to openly say that. that I fail in that very often. And I'm sorry for that. The best way to listen, of course, you know, we could look at tips to do this, but you're leaning forward, truly absorbing as much as possible, being conscious and, and, and seeing what's going on, trying not to have a stone face or... Uh, maybe a, even a weird face. You know, sometimes the ways that we listen, we're just, uh, you know. Uh, but react naturally, right? And I, I fail in this. I'm not, I, I need to improve in this. So how well are we doing that? How well are we communicating with each other? You know, the answer to this question may tell us the direction that we're headed as a congregation. 
Because so often the problem is that we're not spending time with each other. We're not talking to each other about what's going on here. And again, this can happen anywhere where we just go home and we go into our normal routine. We need to be conscious of what's going on here and concerned about the direction of our congregation together. We have to be watchful and vigilant for error that crops up. And also, we have to be watchful even for wasted effort that may be better spent in other ways. You know, if there are things that I need to, I need to be doing or things that you feel like maybe is a waste of time that I'm doing, tell me. And I want, I want us to have that freedom to interact on that level to say, hey, I, I see you're doing this. Maybe you could kind of fine-tune and do this. We can all do that together. And I think we'll be benefited for it. It's upon all of our shoulders to hold each other accountable for the work and to encourage each other in these good things. Well, the last couple of points here, and we'll leave it with you. The work of an evangelist, defined as a messenger of good, denotes a preacher of the gospel, makes clear the distinctiveness of the function in the churches. Uh, to proclaim glad tidings, good news, gospel, missionaries are evangelists as essentially preachers of the gospel. Notice in this definition, again from Vines, the similarities to preach and preacher. I would suggest that the preacher and the evangelist are one and the same by the way that these uh, terms are being defined. In Acts, uh, uh, what we recognize is that evangelism is a work necessary for every Christian, Matthew 28, 19, but the office of an evangelist is specific toward the goals that are stated for it within the New Testament. In Acts 21 and verse 8, uh, uh, Andrew mentioned um, Philip the evangelist. Acts 21 and verse 8, The next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Since Acts 8, at least 20 years have passed, and again Andrew mentioned that and noted that, he has a house in Caesarea, which uh, means he is established in the city with a dwelling place. He is recognized in the text as Philip the Evangelist. And the question is brought up, or the, the point is brought up, well, we don't really know much about what Philip was doing there. Well, let's keep this in mind. Paul is there. Paul is an inspired author. And Luke, who's writing Luke, Luke is an inspired author. I would suggest that everything that Paul wrote to one evangelist would logically apply to every other evangelist. In much the same way, that he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. He's not talking about evangelists there in 1 Corinthians 7, but I want us to recognize that what Paul said to someone, he would have said the same thing to anyone who's working within the role of an evangelist. So I would suggest that everything he says, everything he writes to Timothy and to Titus, would apply to the work that Philip does. Paul's writing to Timothy to come before winter in 2 Timothy 4 does not invalidate the long stay of Philip in Caesarea. Let's also look at Ephesians 4 again and look at a couple of words there. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. He gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets. He himself gave some, excuse me, to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I've put emphasis upon those two words, for and till, or until. Uh, what's fascinating is the uh, New Living Translation uh, phrases that part, this will continue until. And I don't hold to the New Living Translation for a lot of accuracy per se, but it is thought for thought in terms of the way that they translate those. What I would suggest is that this difference here, for speaks of the purpose of this role, right? For the edifying of, edifying of the body of Christ, for the equipping of the saints, right? All these roles are to that goal, right? And we talk about what's the purpose of this. But how long does that go? Well, Paul says, till or until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what I would call general authority. Whereas the specific authority of 1 Corinthians 3 where we recognize that the time of miracles would come to an end and all these spiritual gifts would expire, we recognize that that shows us that the roles of apostles and prophets is fulfilled at that point. And that there's no need for those roles to be still among us. But there is still a need for the role of uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And again, note the difference. The evangelists are not the same thing as teachers in here, or at least listed here. So that's what I would recommend and suggest about that. As long as we are not there yet, as long as we have not come to uh, the unity of faith and practice, there is always the need of the work of an evangelist. The work of an evangelist is also unlike any other work. And I don't, I, I'm saying this on a grand scale in, in terms of the world. I'm not saying that the evangelist is different than other roles within the church. In fact, it, it is similar in some ways to the role of teacher and the role of elder. But this is a command by God for the evangelist to accomplish the work of preaching, and it requires the support of the brethren in order to actually be successful. If an evangelist is doing his thing at a place and actually uh, trying his best at a place and the congregation just isn't working along with him, that's not going to work, and that has to change. And so we bring up the question of how long should a preacher be around? Well, we just simply need to use our common sense and understand that there's a time when a preacher is not going to be useful. Either he's gone into a place where he's not useful and he's not doing the work, or he's uh, gone way beyond teaching false doctrine and he needs to leave immediately, or uh, it's, it's a, a sense where there's just not working together that is, that is actually working. It's, this is not a job as we continue, you know, consider secular jobs to be. It's not a status to be enjoyed. It's not a, a preference or something that's, you know, uh, but it's an enormous responsibility to edify the brethren and rebuke the false teacher. You know, my dad's a preacher. My grandpa on my, on my mom's side is a preacher. I've been told all my life, don't preach to get rich. If you're doing that, then you've got it completely wrong. Do we have situations where brethren are teaching for the salary? Absolutely. You had it back in Paul's time. You had it back in the first century. That's always going to be a problem. And we need to work against those excesses. But, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Let me suggest also, and I've got a whole lesson about that, uh, youth, you could, you could replace that word with old age or with inexperience or things such as that. 
because what will happen sometimes is people will refuse the truth and use any excuse they can to legitimize their opposition to the truth. And that's what Paul is basically saying there. Because this work is focused on the message being proclaimed, it has to demand our greatest attention and our best focus. Jesus himself, what was his purpose? Luke 4 and verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And I believe many of the men here, if not all of us, have that same understanding. If I'm preaching, I must preach. I must teach. I must share this message. Our final thought today. We need to fulfill our ministry, just as Paul is saying here. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been kept, uh, taken captive by him to do his will. I always thought, you know, I used to actually use this verse, able to teach, to say that every Christian has to be able to teach. And I think in some ways that's true. We have to be willing to get to that point and strive to do that. But that, word, that term, able to teach, that's talking about being skilled in teaching. That just doesn't mean that you're able to just fill the time. And so what Paul is saying here, he's talking to Timothy as a servant of the Lord. Paul writes this because he is the servant of the Lord. And in the office of an evangelist, there are certain requirements. In a way, these are the qualities of an evangelist. In much the same way that you would recognize that the qualities of an elder are in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Now, there are qualities of an elder that every Christian ought to strive for, right? Every single one of us. If we're, you know, even if we're not planning on being an elder, we ought to plan to be an elder, by the way, uh, unless something you know, comes in to get, get in the way of that. But anyone who wants to preach and teach the gospel should already possess these qualities, I would suggest. Just in the same way as we say that if someone wants to be an elder, they already have to possess these qualities. And again, this is not something we hold on others. This is not something we hold on top of others. This is for the individual Christian to ask myself, okay, does this look like me? Is this what I look like? And if that's not me, if there's something that's lacking in me, I need to work on that and get better at that so that, you know what? So that they may know the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That's the purpose. We are fighting the battle against sin. And when we fight the battle against sin, we, we should not do it haphazardly. We should not do it naively. And I'm challenging myself just as much as anyone else here. Of course, James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers knowing we shall receive a stricter judgment. Just some things to think about. Think about our ministry at North Columbus. Again, restating these questions, how much work are we putting into our lessons? Are we preaching lessons that herald the truth or are we doling out information as we would in a Bible class? How much effort are we putting into listening to each other's lessons? How well are we communicating with each other as a congregation so that we can be vigilant and watchful for any error or any wasted effort that may crop up? And are we fulfilling our ministry as a local congregation? I know that doesn't precisely fit what Paul is speaking to Timothy there. But our ministry, our help to each other, uh, we need a plan for edification. We can do it with our current model at North Columbus. I believe that. But, of course, having multiple brethren decide what they're preaching and teaching makes it difficult to have a plan moving ahead. 
and the vision and goals to where we get to, to get to where we need to be. More from every person is required to do this work. And I'm not, this is not a comment on where we are right here necessarily, but we have the ability and the motivation to do this. And it's just the same thing, for example, when a congregation doesn't have elders, right? I would say that when a congregation doesn't have elders, the work still needs to be done. And the responsibility for that work is upon the shoulder of the whole congregation at that point. And even though we can't claim the authority of elders, we still have to do the work. In the same sense here, what we're talking about here is having all of them in bring what you might say their A game to the table. And again, this is something we can all have this fulfillment in. God will bless us for these efforts if we're genuine and honest in them. If we're looking at this with an open mind to recognize that, hey, this is the work that we're supposed to be doing. This is the goal. We're trying to make sure that we are inoculated from from the falsehoods and from the deceit that's out there. And also we're working on each other. We're trying to help each other out. So where's our ministry at North Columbus? Our full picture of the work of evangelists needs to help us understand that there is no single example that we look to in the scriptures that we hold against another example that's also in the scriptures. We don't take one example and say that's the way when there's another example that is in the scriptures and clear as well. We need to be careful about establishing patterns where none exist within the text. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We need to be careful we're not doing that. Let's recognize that all of us can become Pharisees. It doesn't matter what we're thinking or how, how, uh, how uh, out there we're thinking in our thoughts about the Scripture, how loose we are or how conservative we might think we are. We need to be careful. And again, we all can share in this work together. Let's do the work of God together and appreciate each other's work at the same time. I appreciate the kind attention this morning. If you have yet to respond to the gospel call, we encourage you to think about these things. Our call is to be the church that God wants us to be, to work in the ways that God has told us to work, and not go beyond his word, but to appreciate that he's given us a way, to appreciate that he's shown us the way. And if you recognize that that way is shown to you this morning, we encourage you to make the right choice Believe in God, trust in Him, and obey Him and submit to His message. If you need to respond to the gospel, please do so while we stand and sing.